Hello, this is Paul Nobles from Eat to Perform. Feel like we need like some some high powered intro music for Nose Torque with Paul and Chris, um, but uh, we don't have that. Uh, if you're listening to this on a podcast, what you are listening to is basically one of our quick start classes where we talk more training than fat loss but obviously there's always you know some overlap there so you know we'll um and and today i think would be a good example of what we're going to talk about but if you're not a member of eat to perform and you're listening to this podcast basically what's happening is is we have a number of eat to perform members and you know the class is relatively small today and so we'll be able to kind of if ever if someone has questions related to the topic at hand you know we can talk about that or if they have something else going on um, we can kind of address those issues as well um what you know so let me <laughs> and oh that's the other thing too these are pretty casual and so if you're listening to this and you're like oh God, this is not, you know, the production value on this. You know, the the idea is really to get information to you guys in the easiest way possible. And the easiest way possible sometimes has my floor creaking above this this call. Sometimes my dog will bark. Sometimes Chris's daughter will come in and say, Daddy, you know, and that's just, you know, I I, I think the problem that you run into you know, when you're trying to soundproof your house and, you know, a lot of times we'll, you know, on Mondays and Thursdays, the production value is a little bit better because my family's not here. And so, you know, they, but it, it, it's very inconvenient for both Chris and I's family to, to kind of do that, do it that way. So, you know, once again, if uh dog barks, that bothers you. Sorry about that. I'm sure there are other podcasts out there, but you know we want to be able to get you the um, the well. Definitely, there are podcasts with better production value, right? Um, <laughs> so, Chris, do you want to say hi and and just kind of kind of talk to people real quick about like you know how things are going with your training? Um, I, I know I ask you this every every week, but I think your your meets in February. Yep, coming up on the twentieth here, so about two weeks out. Uh, morning, everybody. Uh, hope you got a cup of coffee handy. Um, I'm still waking up a little bit, even though I've been up for three hours, but so it goes. Uh, my training's going well. Um, hit Hitting numbers like I expected to. Um, should be on pace to get 500 squat, at least a 350 bench, which I was able to do yesterday um, just to check it out. Um, and then I'm thinking 525 to 550 for a deadlift, so... And my numbers so far are bearing that out. And so that's the plan anyway. When you were were kind of in diet mode, you know, where you were focused more on paleo and probably your life habits and stuff weren't awesome, you know. Was weightlifting in your life at all? I mean, I know that you have kind of a background of skateboarding and stuff like that where you, you know, had some activity in your life, but it wasn't necessarily to the degree that it is now. Um, no, in, in my 
let's see, in my early 20s, I would go to the gym um, pretty frequently and lift it, but I was just doing your, you know, three sets of 10 of, of you know, chest day, back day, you know, backs and buys, chest and tries, and then a leg day, um, but I wasn't really following any program or powerlifting, really had no idea what I was doing. I was just doing what I thought was right. But, um, and then I got into the skateboarding sponsored, um, you know, so they were giving me free stuff to skate. So that kind of took over and the gym disappeared a bit. Um, then in my, I, what would I'm 38, 34 is when I decided to start, um, getting my life back together was when I quit smoking. And, uh, I did start lifting, but I was still, doing what I had done in my twenties, which was, uh, you know, like I just said, the back and bias, chest, tries, legs, um, so more, more, no real, more of a like bodybuilding kind of stuff. Yep. But no. with no real plan. Like I didn't have any plan. If it was, if something felt heavy, I had the weight came down and if it felt light, I weight went up. I, I didn't have any. The only outlook. reason why I'm, the only reason why I interrupt you there is because that's actually the topic that we're going to talk about today is, you know, um, how, you can affect your metabolism um, by various things you do and why that's important because I think that that's something that, you know, when people are looking for fat loss, as an example, um, they'll often train and exercise and they focus on harder, harder, harder. And we're the, the emphasis of this episode is really going to be smarter. Mm -hmm. I think then during the two years before I found ETP, um, I, I struggled a lot with diet and cutting calories and trying to get lean and um, paleo was a part of that. Um, but I still hadn't found eat to perform or powerlifting really, which both in their own way gave me a structure in a way. Um, even though ETP had that flexibility, it still gave me something to, to shoot for in terms of my nutrition. And that, that was where everything really took off. So when, when did like, you know, like the ape shit numbers, like when did that become a goal? Like when were there numbers and things that you were doing as, as, as lifting? And, and once again, I mean, like people are going to focus on the power lifting part, but really, I mean, we could be, you know, we have eat performers that are ultra marathoners. You know, we have people that, you know, Olympians. I mean, we have a lot of people that do like a lot of really cool stuff. And so for you, for powerlifting, what was kind of that moment like, oh, shit, like I can do like amazing stuff? It was probably a couple months into ETP um, because prior to that, like I said before, is I was only eating like 1,600 calories a day. So my numbers were not really doing anything. And I, I kind of thought like, okay, this might be as strong as I can be. Um, you know, and I was blaming my age or you know, my kids or my sleep or whatever the case was. Then I found Eat to Reform, which gave me the food I needed, really. I mean, that, that's what it came down to was the fuel. Um, I worked up, got up to my calories pretty quickly, actually, um, once I started. And then my numbers started to explode again. Like, really, I was hitting PR after PR after PR, and they were big, too. It wasn't like a five-pound jump all the time. It was sometimes 10, sometimes 20. My deadlift took off. My, be my bench started to move up again, like, which is actually my slowest lift. But um, once I saw that my numbers were going up again, then all of a sudden it was like the, the skies opened up. It was like, okay, I have more potential here that I could fulfill. So I, let's do that. Let's make a plan for that. 
how much could I re- reasonably achieve in a year or how much could I reasonably achieve in six months? Like what kind of numbers and how do I plan that out? And that's when I got into research and programming and things like that. So the reason why I'm trying to kind of like, you know, uh, mold the conversation into a direction Mm -hmm. that, you know, fits for multiple goals is because I think there's probably going to be a lot of women that will be listening to this and go, yeah, I ain't into that shit. Right. Like they're, they're going to be thinking to themselves, you know, I don't care what my bench press is. I don't care what, you know, this and that is. They kind of want to be a little bit better at maybe CrossFit or running or some of the, you know, maybe like physique type stuff. Um, and, and certainly there are powerlifting women. We have many examples of it um, where, you know, the, um, they are great examples, you know, in the science lab group um, and, and mostly in the training group and off topic groups. Um, also, Chris and I were just looking at the new Reebok Light TRs, which is basically the, the Reebok powerlifting shoe. A lot of people use that shoe um, as kind of a casual shoe. I know I do. Um, my, my TRs, you know, I use for jeans and stuff like that. And I was sort of wondering, and I think Chris was probably too, there was a black version that was leather, that's probably the most popular version of that shoe. I don't, I don't, you know, it doesn't really go on sale very much. And the reason why it doesn't is because it's super popular. And so I was always thinking like, how are they going to come up with another version of this that's better than this? Because this is like really super popular. And then when you look at the new designs, um, you you realize what they were going to do. And I think they, I think they did a pretty good job. You know, usually I'm imagining Mark Bell and Jesse Burdick were kind of the inspirations for, you know, some of the design there. Um, and so, so I think it's pretty cool. Had you seen any previews? Cause I hadn't seen any previews. I did see, I, I know that there's a light, uh, there's a low, um, coming out, um, that I saw Chris Spieler wearing at the CrossFit games that I was like, Oh, that's hot right there. You know? Um, but I did not know what like the mid would look like. So, um, so yeah, so that, that's sort of interrupting things. So what I wanted to talk about, you know, we had, we had a number of, of questions where people sort of brought, uh, to us, right. Um, questions related to bodybuilders right um why you know metabolism changes and and things of that nature and then kind of like how long you know that might take so the best way i think to describe it that sort of keeps it on a simple you know like the the most basic level that makes the most impact for people So I had two instances in my life within the last two years. And one, I was in a motorcycle accident where I ripped my ankle off of my foot. And so literally my ankle was dangling, you know, or my, 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 the bottom part of my leg was disconnected from my leg, you know? Um, And so when I first started off, um, 
I was trying to get healthy at that point, and uh, I had just come out of kind of a, a bad cycle where I didn't really understand. It was kind of like what most people try to do, where it's really super aggressive and you know, low calorie, low carb, you know, all the stuff that, that people use, um, without a particularly enlightened approach. And then, you know, and what's funny is, was when I talk about my journey, I include those years, like that failure period, right? Which was, I believe, 2006, 2007, because that was the biggest part of my journey because I learned what didn't work. You know, and once I once I had kind of done enough self-experimentation, you know, then I knew, OK, here, you know, here's the direction that I need to go. But. When, you know, what's funny about like the motorcycle accident, um, I mean, to this day, like like just talking about the motorcycle, it seems like strange to me that I still pine for this motorcycle um, it, it was a, it was a sportster. Um, it was decked out, uh, to kind of be like James Dean kind of level, right? You know, it had like a, a leather seat, um, and, you know, had, you know, a lot of different things that was going to be a little bit more, uh, kind of aesthetic. It wouldn't be something that I would like, you know, jump on and, and go to the, Black Hills, but you know, who knows? Maybe, maybe I would have, um, but, uh, and, and it, it was sort of like the, the perfect storm for, you know, a life changing event because normally if I were to finance the motorcycle, what would have to happen is I would have to be insured and they would not allow me to take it off of the lot without that in, in place um, I think that um, I think that I did have to show insurance but because it wasn't financed I was able to take it off a lot I think that was the dif differentiation and your state might be different so you know that's just the state that I live in and that's the rules that they had long story short um, took it off the lot you know my plan was to go through motorcycle training once I got it home. A lot of people often wonder, why would you think that you could ride a motorcycle? I've ridden motorcycles my whole life. You know, it, I just hadn't ridden them in probably 20 years. But when I was in Louisiana, you know, I, you know, I was very familiar with a clutch, things of that nature. Um, was it a little bit, you know, presumptuous to think that you know I could you know use a, a bike that's over a thousand cc's you know yeah it, it probably was a little presumptuous you know and it probably wasn't the smartest thing that I, I ever did um, but you know I've come to grips with that but uh, and, I, and I was lucky to live you know I, I did a lot of smart things in that process you know I went down a side street rather than a main street if i went down a main street um i could have run into a car and died you know there's a lot of things that that could have happened one of the interesting things about you know motorcycles is you know people tell you you know when you're buying a motorcycle like the negative stories but in general they kind of keep it 
you know, to their best a little bit. But then when you're in a motorcycle accident, all of a sudden, all the doctors, all the ER people, I mean, they hit you, you know. Um, and to my credit, sorry, I'm drinking, drinking coffee. The whole point of Nose Torque with Paul and Chris was the fact that we drink coffee during this and, and and we thought that coffee talk made it made us sound a little wimpy so we we decided to go with nose torque if you don't know what nose torque is nose torque is basically ammonia caps that people use before you know weightlifting competition similar to uh what do they call that in football they call it something else um, smelling salts yeah yeah um so sm it's it's basically smelling salts um to kind of um, in insight, the uh, flight or fight, you know, kind of is, is some of the science on it is a little debatable, but you know, um, it's just a, it's just a way, you know, it's similar to listen to DMX before a big lift, right? You know, something like that. Um, so, but to get to the the point, I was under eating. Um, at that point, um, I was eating less. And I, I was just getting to the part of doing things a little bit smarter. But because I, you know, was in a cycle of um, I need to lose weight, I stayed in the cycle while I was in a chair. I didn't see any value, you know, in woe is me and becoming, you know, obese in the process again. <laughs> You know, and so, uh, so what happened was, um, I lost a fair amount of weight in that process and I actually lost a lot more weight than I probably would have normally lost. I wasn't body fat testing at that point, but I have body fat tested. I did body fat test a year later and the body fat test information was very enlightening and I'll talk to you guys about that and the assumptions that we can sort of make from that. What I remember was being ketogenic a lot. And I remember having that metallic breath, you know, almost to the point where it, it tasted like blood um, a lot, right? Um, and, and people would go, wow, this is how he lost all his weight. Well, not really. I mean, the, um, you know, I don't think the net weight loss from that scenario was awesome. And what I'm actually pointing out is that I did it wrong, not that I did it right. But once again, I mean, pe what people want is here's step one, here's step two, here's step three, here's step four, here's abs, right? And what I'm actually pointing out to you guys right now is a failure that happened to me that probably cost me a fair amount of muscle, right? Because I was under eating and I wasn't allowing my body to heal. And so, so I'm under eating, I'm in a chair for roughly six to seven months, um, which, you know, I'm naturally an active guy. I was naturally an active guy when I was overweight, you know, I just overate my metabolism. So 
Um, what ended up happening, I don't remember a huge amount of weight loss from the scenario, but I do remember not digging a huge hole, which was, was helpful. Um, but when we talk about metabolism and why weightlifting is better than something like running, right? What I really want to emphasize is kind of the connection between your body healing versus your body tearing down, right? So when you are weightlifting, there's a similarity to being injured, okay? It's, it's micro, right? You're not, you're not intentionally trying to like rip your leg off. Um, but when my leg ripped off and they reset my leg and they, they, you know, well, actually they couldn't do anything with my broken toes. So I still have like snaggly little toes, um, that kind of go in all kind of different directions. Um, and, and it's one of the reasons why I'm not great at like that triple extension. Um, it's also another reason why, you know, I don't really have a whole lot of interest in getting better at double unders um, just because I have to land on that toe cap um, and and I have three broken toes there. And so like that, that section of my foot is more pronounced. So in the time, you know, where I was like, you know, I was glad that that I didn't, you know, ultimately, you know, dig a hole that I would have struggled to get out of. But at the same time, I was definitely under eating um, and, you know, hurting my metabolism in the process. I did, um, I do remember pretty distinctively um, wanting to do physical activity, you know, other than obviously just sitting in a chair, you know. And so at a certain point, I did start doing like push-ups. I don't think that I could do pull-ups at that time. Um, even going into CrossFit, I mean, I was able to maybe eke out one or two, but like my tendons and joints, and we can have the tendons and joints conversation as well because it's always interesting to me when people talk about shin splints or golfer's elbow or, or things of that nature. And, you know, a lot of that is, you know, you're deconditioned, you know, and as you get stronger and your tendons and stuff like that start to, um, you know, how do your tendons and ligaments get stronger? Well, basically through resistance training, you, you know, increase the muscle. So if the, if the muscle, as an example, and I'm kind of pointing to my bicep, you know, you won't be able to see that on the podcast, obviously, but as your, your bicep, as an example, starts to get stronger, your ligaments and tendons have to get stronger to adjust. It's basic, basic adaptation, right? That's what we're, that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about adaptation. So when you are doing resistance training on a micro level, you are tearing down tissue in an effort to bring back stronger tissue. And so, well, how do you do that? Well, one, you're progressively working, similar to what Chris was talking about, to where 
you get stronger. This is the problem with non-specific training where you aren't focused on progressively getting stronger. So if all your thought process is, is fat loss all the time, well, part of that process is keeping the muscle that you have on your frame and potentially adding new muscle to your frame. You do that by a series of smaller, you know, I mean, injury is not the best way to describe it, but it is the best analogy I can make right now for why your metabolism increases related to resistance training compared to say something like running or even CrossFit to a certain extent, right? Because, you know, what you see a lot of times is CrossFit training will have um, some kind of strength training. And what we're trying to point out is not that CrossFit's bad. What we're trying to point out is here's how you use your CrossFit to increase your metabolism and therefore get better at CrossFit, right? So, um, and, 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 you know, a lot of people will say, well, you know, you know, that sounds differently than, you know, a lot of the stuff that we hear, you know, wheat belly and, and, you know, uh, more fats and things of that nature. All I'm trying to do is be an advocate for science. And all I'm trying to do is be an advocate for the right information. And that's why, you know, we have PhDs on staff. That's why we have, you know, the highest level researchers that work for Eat to Perform. So we can bring to you guys the information that actually makes sense rather than, you know, coming up with simplistic solutions that may be correct for some individuals, but not correct for a lot of individuals. But when I was injured, my metabolism was trying to upregulate, right? But I was keeping my food low. And ultimately what ended up happening was it took me longer to heal because I was, you know, under eating because I was sort of uninformed at that time. Now, I will say that 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 was the genesis of Eat to Perform. So I was doing research and I was I was emailing doctors at, at, at universities and, and all this other kind of stuff. So I did fairly quickly stop the under eating thing. Right. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and tell you. Once I started body fat testing, what happened? At this point, I was not under eating, but I wasn't able to train the way that I normally would. So I body fat tested beforehand. So so basically, there was my my main injury, um, and 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 sort of the the takeaway from this is your metabolism upregulates when you're injured. And that, that happens on multiple levels. It also will often upregulate if you're sick, right? So we're, we're sort of pointing to, you know, how you get better and how your metabolism helps you do that, okay? So one year, I break my leg, I under eat, takes me longer to heal. 
I start to figure that out a little bit. The next year, you know, I had, I was basically like the bionic man. Uh, there was another surgery that they were going to do. What I remember specifically was that it took almost three months for like even the inflammation to go down. So the next year, the doctor told me, it's going to take probably the same amount for you to recover from the bunion surgery and then for us to take out, you know, all of the metal that's in your leg. So I was like, okay, you know, that's fine. You know, I went through it before. You know, we're just going to try and suck it up and we're going to move on. The doctor was wrong. Um, within two weeks, I was able to get all of the inflammation out of my ankle. And I went to the doctor after two weeks and I said, I think I'm ready to like, you know, go back to normal stuff. Um, is there any way that we can sort of figure this out? Because I mean, I don't have any inflammation in my ankle at all. And I think I'm healed. And so he did like a series of x-rays and stuff like that. And he's like, dude, you're ready to go. You know, what I'm pointing out to you, you know, and, and, and this may make no sense at all, but I'm hoping it does make some sense, is that the first year, food and moving wasn't a big part of my life. The second year, food and moving was a big part of my life. Instead of working against my metabolism, I worked with my metabolism and that changed everything, right? So when we're looking at what resistance training is doing, resistance training is trying to tear down tissues. It's basically kind of micro injuries that send a signal to your body that you need an adequate amount of food to be able to adjust to the stimulus. Right. And so that's basically how adaptation happens. If you don't have food into the equation, you know, one of the things that someone brought it up was that bodybuilders, as an example, often have to undereat. And their their connection was the fact that a lot of these bodybuilding ladies will often eat twelve hundred calories. Let me just tell you that Ronda Rousey does not eat as little as she says she does, that many of these people don't eat as little as they say they do. One of the problems and one of the reasons why you know, we've never actively gone after a physique athlete, why we don't sponsor physique athletes, and why we... Um, I mean, there's probably scenarios where we would but I've not encountered one. Um, and the reason why I've not encountered one is because most physique competitors become professional dieters over time, right? And when you look at, you know, measuring yourself with a metabolic cart, whether it's VO2 max, whatever you're doing to measure metabolism, chronically dieting to be stage ready, right? 
So when you're looking at Ronda Rousey and she's telling you what she's eating, she's not mentioning all the chicken wings. She's not mentioning the pancakes. She's not going to mention those things because it doesn't, you know, complete her narrative of, you know, this is how I stay a sexy individual. And the reason why she feels pressure to do that is because Vogue and Cosmopolitan and all these other people think that that's what you guys want to hear, right? So one of the arguments that we always make is not that the marketing is bad. It's not. The marketing is not bad. The marketing did not convince you, you know, that you wanted to be lean. You wanted to be lean and they came up with marketing, you know, that fit your narrative, right? If you weren't buying all the bullshit, you know, they wouldn't be selling the bullshit. They'd find new bullshit to sell, right? And so when you're talking about physique competitors, because there's a lot of people that look at a physique competitor and they'll look at somebody like Dana Lynn Bailey or something like that and go, wow, that is my ideal physique. You have no idea how much work that Dana Lynn Bailey is, is putting in in that scenario, you know, once again, you know, when we're talking about physique and bodybuilding, there's a reason why Phil Heath looks like Phil Heath and why natural bodybuilders and physique competitors look like they do, right? I mean, we don't have to run over that every single week, why that happens. But at the end of the day, you know, when we're talking about recovering so your body can adapt you have to have food as part of that process and you have to have work as part of that process. So if somebody's saying to you that they eat 1200 calories, but they also bodybuild five to six days a week and, you know, they, they maintain that throughout the year, or at least that's the assumption that most people make. I don't think that that's actually the case, but I do believe that most of those people do under eat. I think that, you know, their relationship with food often changes. If you ever talk to any of them, you know, they will openly talk about that, right? That their relationship with food changes dramatically when they're in cutting cycles. The ultimate point being is that if you're bodybuilding or powerlifting or crossfitting or any of these types of things, and you are trying to create, you're trying to tear down tissue and build up new leaner tissue, making your body more useful. Food is a component and rest is a component. But both of those things are favorable as it relates to your metabolism, right? When you are under eating or when you are sending a signal to your body that you're doing more than you're, you're eating, essentially, you know, what we're talking about is the difference between being catabolic and anabolic. In, in the case of being catabolic, the good majority of the time where you're tearing down tissue, here's the problem with catabolic. I'm, I'm you know, I'm not, you talk about, catabolism and like people lose their minds right but when we talk about losing body fat people are like yeah that sounds like that's exactly what I want to do 
well, we're talking about being catabolic, right? All, all being catabolic is, is tearing down tissue. We're not saying tearing down muscle tissue, right? We're, you could also tear down adipose tissue at that point. That's your fat. So I think people, especially weightlifters, when you talk about being catabolic, they're like, oh my God. You know, essentially if you're a weightlifter, you're playing a game where you're trying to get in enough volume to keep the muscle that you have and potentially build more. There's obviously a food calorie balance equation there. And then not necessarily, you know, um, losing the muscle tissue, but potentially losing the, um, you know, the, the fat tissue or adipose tissue. And the reason why that's important is because the more athletic you tend to be, you know, um, and, and there's a lot of parts of athleticism and, you know, Chris's version of athleticism is different than my version of athleticism is different than ultramarathoners athleticism. But in general, the more athletic that you are, the, the more easily your body processes body fat, which, you know, sounds like a narrative that should be out there, right? It's not. It's not a narrative that's out there. You don't want to see your Weight Watchers going, you know, hey, you guys should really be trying to be the best athletic version of yourself so you can use your body fat more efficiently. No, they're like, you need to lose weight. Well, guess what weight does? You know, losing weight um, and a constant focus on losing weight compromises your metabolism. It compromises your recovery. It compromises your sleep. When you talk about, you know, these physique competitors, you know, that, you know, are being held up to this standard, you know, what do they have to do to get to sleep on a nightly basis? You know, what do they have to do? You know, and so that's, that's a bit of the problem with looking at these people as kind of like the best version of you, right? You know, you might be a lawyer... <laughs> You might have a job, you know, um, and, and, you know, the, one of the funniest things about, you know, talking to, you know, a lot of really what I would consider semi-professional athletes, you know, there's a lot of CrossFit, you know, games, examples, you know, I can think of Olympians that are examples, powerlifters that are in examples where they think of themselves as professionals because they are paid money. If you're a professional and you're paid an amount that is less than poverty wages, you're really not a professional, right? And Chris could probably speak to this a little bit because like in, in his world with professional skateboarding, there's like, you know, the people that are being kind of sponsored and, you know, they're they're kind of living a lifestyle and it's kind of cool because you're obviously skating and you're wearing a monster sticker and, and things of this nature. But trust me, no one was confusing Chris's lifestyle with Tony Hawk's lifestyle. Right. And, and the whole idea was to, you know, really try and get to a point where, um, athleticism 
you know, kind of, you know, ruled the day, right? And I guess that's, you know, I, you know, I kind of lost track there, you know, for a second. But, I mean, the ultimate point being is that LeBron James is not sponsored by Weight Watchers. Serena Williams, you know, I mean, I would assume that she's not, you know. I mean, it, most really good athletes can't be sponsored by these starvation systems because, you know, it's not going to allow them to become the best athlete that there are. And you go, well, why is that important? Well, I just explained to you why it's important. Because your body processes fat better when you um, keep the amount of muscle that, you know, you're, you're trying to build in the gym. And so oftentimes the first question that I'll have with people that are holding on to excessive fat and they're relatively lean is what are your lifts like, you know? And if, you know, they're still front squatting 95 pounds, you know, five, five, five by five, and they've been weightlifting for five years, well, that's probably the issue, you know, because you're not allowing for enough, you know, stimulus to create a significant amount of adaptation. And part of that is because you're obviously not getting enough rest. You're obviously not getting enough food. There's something that is part of the equation. And when you look at what we teach people and how it's different, what we're trying to do is get you in the door with enough information that really points out what is the answer, but then also kind of get you kind of thirsty for more, you know, like, wow, if I did that and it made that big of a difference, what more could I do? And then Chris will answer, well, this is what you could do, right? Or I will answer, well, this is what you could do. And so um, that's really what Eat to Perform is. You know, it's really kind of an extension of a base of knowledge and then sort of building this tree of information where you will pick and choose different things. And, and, and it really sort of changes everything as it relates to kind of your journey. But when we break it down and we talk about why metabolism is increased in periods where your body is adapting, it comes down to some level of healing, right? Like when you look at when you were in a growth spurt, you know, as a 13 year old person, you ate more naturally, you know, um, and that was your body, you know, adapting to growth. And, and that's essentially what we're trying to ultimately accomplish, you know, by, you know, having more defined ab muscles, having, you know, stronger biceps, you know, bigger quads, bigger glutes, things of that nature. And so, you know, I think food often gets dismissed as kind of a component there, but, you know, it really needs to be kind of a bigger thing. Um, any thoughts on, on what I'm saying there, Chris? Because I know that, you know, I would think that most of the questions that a lot of people would have would be like, you know, how much? Because I know that like, 
when your training cycle, as an example, when you first started off, your calories were, were closer to 4,000 calories, right? And then now they've kind of come down to, to 3,000 calories. So you've been able to find some calorie balance where you, you know, you find some weight stability and actually even lost a little weight, you know, in preparation for this meet. Any thoughts on, on that process and then sort of, you know, the overarching principle that I'm talking about? Yeah, um, I guess one thing that jumps out at me that about what you were saying first was that I think one of the things that CrossFit did brilliantly was made everyone athletes because they, they basically made exercise a sport. Um, and, and I think that's important because that, that relates to that athleticism you're talking about. But I think there's a slight disconnect when it comes to the food, like you're saying, because a lot of people are still using CrossFit to try to look better, but they're not fueling appropriately because they're focused on the weight loss rather than getting better at CrossFit. Um, there's there's going to be some blend carryover between those things, but I think it's important to note that you need the food to fuel the CrossFit to get better at the CrossFit and, and to ultimately build your metabolism. I have an interesting part about that. Yeah. Because I was counting calories when I first started CrossFit. And no one else was, right? I mean, like, I walked in there, and everybody was like, paleo this, paleo that. Um, and I was eating, you know, mostly whole foods, but I was really tracking my intake. When I first started CrossFit, I ha I was already eating 3,000 calories. You know, I was 165 pounds at that time. People were like, oh, my God, dude, you eat, like, a ton of food. I was like, yeah, I need to eat a ton of food, you know, because I do a fair amount of, of work. Um but when I started crossfitting and weightlifting, the, I mean, like it, everything changed. I mean, like my, my, my sex drive changed. I mean, it was unreal, the difference. And I ended up going from 3,000 to 4,000 calories within the first six months. Lost weight in that process, right? So it really does kind of point to the efficacy of, of CrossFit as a training style for new trainees, Right, because a lot of times, you know, a, a lot of people will say kind of similar to what you were saying, you know, I'm scared, I'm not much of an athlete, you know, when you're eating an appropriate amount, you know, it can make some big differences and you can even lose weight. But I had to move my calories up to 4,000 calories so I could adjust and I was still losing weight, you know. Now, part of it was I had built a significant amount of capacity. Before going into CrossFit, you got to remember when I walked into the door at CrossFit, I was 230 pounds at one point. When I walked through the door at CrossFit, I was 162 pounds. My cardio base was really strong. My resting heart rate was really strong. Not a lot of people walk in from the scenario that I did, right? Where, um, you know, they, they had kind of already seen like an extreme amount of gain. It sort of surprised me. At that point, I was obviously very familiar with, you know, exercise physiology, had been down the path for, you know, a couple years at this point. And, you know, it was it was certainly harder. But I went from 3,000 to 4,000 calories in that process. And in that process, within six months, I gained 15 pounds of muscle. And and no weight. That's That's the key. You know, I didn't gain any weight. And gained 15 pounds of muscle. So when you look at the picture and you see that before and after, yeah. I mean, does CrossFit 
you know, deserve a little bit of the the um, the credit for that. I would say absolutely, right? But what I would say it deserves a lot more credit was the weightlifting that my trainer at CrossFit was putting me through and the amount of adaptation that happened in that short period of time. The good majority of people, when they first start off weightlifting, they're thinking too much about gaining weight and not enough about gaining capacity. And because I already had capacity and because I was open to you know, eating more, I actually lost weight in that scenario because I went from 162 to 149. In full disclosure, okay, um, there was about a three-week period right towards the end, and I, I don't remember the exact year at this point, um, but where I did reduce my calories to 2,000 calories and I thought I was going to die, you know. Um, but, 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 you know, and, and, and once my body did adapt to that muscle, I had to do what you did, right? I had to lower my calories because my metabolism wasn't upregulated anymore. That's the whole point of this discussion. The point of this discussion is that your metabolism upregulates in times of kind of injury and change and sickness and things of this nature, but it won't always stay there. So you can overeat. And so what I was able to do at that time was I was keeping an eye on my weight. And then I stayed at 165, I think for, you know, probably, you know, two years, two and a half years, something like that, where I was weight stable at 165. I reduced my calories to 3000 and then kind of go from there. So I, I interrupted you, but I but I thought that that was a great point to make as it relates to the the argument you were making. Yeah, and for me, um, like I said, when I started, I increased my calories from sixteen hundred to thirty two hundred, and at at that point in time, I was gaining weight. Um, but since then, I've been able to increase to four thousand where I'm slowly gaining weight. That's like a pound a week at 4,000. And my new maintenance level, like just to maintain my weight is is about 3,600 now. So I can actually cut on 32 to 30 to 3,000 to 3,200 calories versus when I started two years ago, that, that, that was actually like a gaining weight number. And that, that relates to how much lean mass I've been able to build in the time I've been here. And at one point in my life, I weighed 183 pounds total. I have close to 200 pounds just in lean mass now, today. And, and that speaks to the metabolism part of it is that because of that, my metabolism has upregulated because my body is trying, your body's trying to find a balance between what you're giving it and what you're doing. And, and it always that changes. That always changes. People think that their metabolism is static. It is not. It changes all the time. Yep. Yep. And it, it will reflect your training. It will reflect your food. And whatever you're doing outside of that, your need, your, your you know, all those things are going to relate back to what your body's going to adapt to what you need it to do. And, and part, part of that is the overload. Like To create overload. Go ahead. Go ahead. The other thing that you're bringing up is the thing 
that makes each form better than everything else out there. Okay. And people go, well, how can he say that? You know, I mean, I've seen people have so much dramatic type of success with various things. How can he say that each form is better than all those other things? I can say it like this. If you don't know why the thing you did worked, then you can't repeat that process. What Chris just said to you was that he has a baseline, okay? And knowing that baseline as it relates to caloric activity and the amount of things that you're doing, that's what makes eat to perform better than everything else out there. Because what happens is if you do, and this is the problem with, you know, one, there's podcasts that talk about eating real food, and then there's there's podcasts that talk about training, and they often don't mix. And we're trying to point out why they both matter and why, right? And when we're talking about having a baseline, what happens with people that are trying to lose X amount of weight? and you don't know that you eat 3,600 calories on a daily basis, what you're going to do is you're going to go off what, you know, that online calculator or your coach or whatever thinks that you should be eating on a daily basis. So if that person thinks that you should be eating 2,500 calories, but you actually need 3,600 calories, they're going to base your deficit off of 2,500 calories and that will cause your body to downregulate quicker. What do I mean when I say downregulate? I'm talking about your metabolism. I'm talking about your thyroid function. I'm talking about your hormones, right? When you look at what eating an adequate amount of food does for you, it, it does a lot of things. One, um, metabolism allows your body to recover to to more ad, you know more stimulus, things of that nature. Um, and and we're not arguing for more, more, more all the time, right? We're just arguing for some level of understanding. But also, what it does that is 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 big, and often goes under you know appreciated is when you eat an adequate amount of food for what you do, you get in an adequate amount of vitamins, right? So when you eat more protein, as an example, you're providing your body the building blocks to heal you, but you're also kind of getting the vitamins that, you know, those animals ate, right, in some form, you know, um, and that is also of value. The other thing when we're talking about vitamins and, and vitamins becoming more bioavailable, um, obviously it's well known that uh, you know some vitamins are fat soluble, so they have to have fats in the process when you're eating an adequate amount for what you do, right? You don't have to worry about keeping your fats low. You don't have to worry about keeping your carbs low all of the time. We're not suggesting that you would never downregulate your metabolism or you would never downregulate, but the good majority of people should be spending the good majority of their time 
becoming the most athletic version of themselves. And if they do that, they're much more likely to solve the puzzle than just, you know, seeking down, down, down all the time. And, and, and I think that, you know, we're describing that well. So I've interrupted you a few times. Um, any punctuation, you know, because I think that you're making good points that people need to hear and that I need to expound upon because, you know, frankly, you know, it, it's just helpful. Yep. Um, the other thing I was going to mention is that, you know, we, we talked a little bit about or we talked a lot about volume last week. But as it relates to this, um, a really good example I have is, is Mandy. Um, I've been working with her. Um, started her about a year ago um and we she was doing a weightlifting program and I, I i ran the numbers and her squat for example um now versus then i more than doubled the total volume she was doing in just her squat alone and her squat has gone up almost double in terms of what her pr has done in in that amount of time her one rep max is 210 right now at the time she was having trouble squatting 100. So it, you take that volume, you build it up over time by eating adequately. Now, if we were to do a cut, she's going to see some results from that versus, and it's going to be at a higher level than it would have been a year ago. Which is why, you know, physique competitors and figure competitors are often, you know, um, missing the boat on their true genetic potential because they're constantly trying to cut, you know? And if you looked at what, you know, I believe, you know, would revolutionize the sport, you know, it's not going to happen, of course, would be to de-emphasize the dieting part where, you know, you couldn't even enter a competition, you know, until you've been doing it for five years or more, right? Because the good majority of people, you know, I mean, not only is Mandy, Mandy is Chris's wife, not only is Mandy um, a great example, she's a great example of something that I think is, is, you know, we really probably should have our own podcast on, you know, sometime soon, is she's not doing it with incredible cardiovascular training right so when mandy went and weightlifted with a lot of people at the eat perform open you know she was one of the strongest people in that place the good majority of those people weren't new to training right but what was the difference? Like, for instance, Mandy was as strong as my wife, maybe even stronger on certain lifts. But my wife has been lifting for three years. Well, what's the difference? Well, Mandy has specifically focused on getting stronger, whereas my wife's training was more varied. And this is the part that needs its own podcast. One of the biggest gifts that you can give yourself is to realize I don't need to do apeshit training to stay lean. That's one of the biggest gifts that you'll give yourself, right? And one of the best things that you can learn 
is that you can use resistance training similar to the way that Mandy and Chris train, right? And maintain your weight, build lean mass in that process, you know, I mean, I'm not typically in the position to say that one man's wife looks better than, you know, um, than she used to or whatever. But in, in, in the case of Mandy, it's like strikingly different. You know what I mean? And, and she's not, she's not crossfitting. She's not running ultra marathons, you know, this and that. And she's embraced kind of this slower process, right? But, you know, she eats fairly flexible, um, and she's allowed, you know, adaptation to the stimulus. And, you know, the part that probably would be a great podcast would just be when you first start off and you're trying to become a better athletic version of yourself, you'll often try all these crazy things. And, and I'm guilty of it, you know. Part of the reason why I'm guilty of it is because part of my journey is I'm naturally a smaller individual. So I gravitate to more athletic type things. You know, I mean, I do, I do like lifting heavy, you know, um, powerlifting is definitely a, a big part of my journey, but at the same time, you know, I like volume, um, but one thing that I found and one thing that I'm, I'm emphasizing with these daily challenges that we're doing in the, in the training and programming group is that when you can get in volume as it relates to resistance training, even if we're just talking about body weight movements, which is what we're doing over there, physique wise, food wise, you know, they're all positive, right? Your, your, your look will be better, you know, when, you know, one of the things that I, you know, I'm, you know, I, I think of this stuff as we're talking and sometimes I, you know, think to say it, but don't. If you're not lifting, which was a little bit of what happened in the scenario where I wasn't able to train because I was injured, you can't pump blood and water into your chest or your arms or whatever. So your muscles end up looking flat, right? I say this a lot. You know, Chris likes it when I say it, but gains ain't loyal, right? And when you look at building lean mass and keeping lean mass and trying to, you know, get better and more defined glutes and things of that nature, you got to do the work. And if you don't do the work, you're not going to see the results. And so when we're talking about running, you ain't doing the work when you're running. That not, that's not an argument for not running, right? You know, you want to run? You want to do marathons? You want to you want to test your human abilities? You got a fan in Paul Nobles. But I'm just telling you, if you want bigger glutes, you don't get that necessarily by running. Now, you could get it by running hills. You could get it by, you know, there's lots of things that you can do. But I would say that that's more on the side of what we're talking about, not necessarily against what we're talking about. What we're talking about is increasing capacity, some level of kind of varying your training. And that is a good fit for 
CrossFit, it's a good fit for powerlifting, it's a good fit for ultramarathoners. You know, you know, I've been mentioning this documentary that I watched called Desert Runners, and one of the things that you noticed with their training was they worked on building their body, you know, a significant amount. I wish there was more, you know, I would love to interview those guys and talk to them about like their their food intake, because I think that'd be fun. I do have an ultra marathoner. You know, obviously we've had discussions with Alex Vieta. Alex, as an example, you know, um, is is a bigger guy. You know, I've seen Alex eat. He's sort of known for his beer intake, you know. So I know that he he eats an adequate amount for what he does. Anything that um, you want to kind of put a bow on before we shut this down, Chris? Um, just as it relates to my training, again, is I think people would be surprised how much bodybuilding style work I actually do if, if you're not watching my training logs but like I do my power lifts and then it's it's your typical bodybuilder type stuff because I'm trying to increase my muscle mass like a, a bigger muscle is a more useful muscle and, and that that's more than just strength that's for my metabolism my strength my health um carrying my kids and groceries you know whatever the case is yeah um, I, I think that's important well, I think that that is a great way to end the show and appreciate everybody listening and you guys have a great weekend. We'll talk to you later.